Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast to bring you insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering credit-based insurance scoring. The battle heats up in Washington state as officials look to ban insurers' use of credit information. Plus, democracy has prevailed. Joe Biden is inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States, a new tone set after his first week in office. And we'll hear from two of our nation's elected representatives about what to expect from the new Congress and plans to support issues of interest to the insurance industry. But first, in Washington state, a bill to ban credit-based insurance scoring is moving through the Senate Committee on Business, Financial Services, and Trade. The legislation, SB 5010, would ban insurers' use of credit information in rating for homeowners, renters, auto and boat insurance, personal lines only. NAMIC testified at a hearing earlier this month to educate lawmakers about the wealth of science-based evidence showing that use of credit-based insurance scoring helps insurers in providing rates that are objective, reliable, non-discriminatory, and most importantly, highly predictive of risk of loss. NAMIC's Director of Auto and Underwriting Policy, Tony Cotto, recently spoke with AM Best TV. He said critics' claims that using credit information for underwriting is discriminatory against minorities and poor communities is, quote, factually inaccurate. And there are already ways to protect consumers. Something that you can do, that they can do in Washington, that has been tremendously successful in other states is follow the lead of the National Conference of Insurance Legislators. Um, The NCOIL model several years ago was amended to basically account for all of the curveballs that life throws at you. And they added provisions called extraordinary life circumstances. And those are intended to deal with all of the situations that you could find yourself in, whether it's loss of a spouse, whether it's a military deployment, whether it's loss of a job. And if you adopt those amendments to the way in which insurers are allowed to use credit-based insurance scores, then you have protected consumers and you have created the flexibility that the carriers need in order to really make this work and really protect their policyholders. Um, That's something we would love to see happen. The committee will likely vote on the legislation in late January or early February. NAMIC will provide an update on the outcome of the hearing in a future advocacy report. Well, it's been one full week since the presidential inauguration, but already the Biden administration has been very busy. Work continues on passing additional relief legislation to counter the health and economic impacts of COVID-19. And President Biden has issued a number of executive orders reversing many Trump-era bans, including a move to reestablish the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. Once implemented, the FFRMS will assist in reducing the risk and cost of future flood disasters by ensuring that federal investments in and affecting floodplains are constructed to better withstand the impacts of flooding. Meanwhile, House Democrats delivered the impeachment case against Donald Trump to the Senate, marking the official start of this historic trial. 
Arguments in the Senate trial are expected to get underway on February 8th. The events leading to Trump's second impeachment, including the riot at the U.S. Capitol, have been contentious and unsettling, to say the least. And perhaps never before have Americans looked with such trepidation upon the transition of power and what a new Congress will bring for our nation. On this week's episode of Unscripted, Namek's Chuck Chamnus brings you a unique opportunity to hear from both sides of the aisle as two of our nation's elected federal officials share their thoughts on what we can expect from the new administration and the Congress for our country and for issues critical to the insurance industry. First up is Democrat Julia Brownlee, elected to Congress in 2012 to represent California's 26th district. Brownlee currently sits on the House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure, where she has helped with passage of the Disaster Recovery Reform Act. Well, thank you for joining me here today, Representative Julia Brownlee. It's truly an honor to have you as a guest on NAMIC's podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So last week, our country inaugurated a new president, Joe Biden, and a history-making vice president, Kamala Harris. Maybe you could share with our members some of your thoughts on the inauguration and, and why there's a reason to be optimistic about the future of, uh, of our country. Well, thank you for that question, and I'd love to talk about that. The uh, inauguration for me was like a breath of fresh air. Uh, it felt like the entire country, honestly, and the world was kind of finally able to exhale uh, after four long years of, I think, holding our breath and keeping our fingers crossed. And I, and I think we now have a president, uh, truly a president and a vice president, I will say, um, that uh, truly has the leadership experience that we so sorely need, I think, at this particular moment uh, in our history. Um, and even, you know, even under the circumstances of COVID and that the inauguration wasn't the traditional inauguration that it typically is, um, that we're at least accustomed to, I think this inauguration uh, stood out as probably one of the most important uh, inaugurations. Um, and, and I say that because really for the last four years, um, I think sadly so, we have uh, witnessed firsthand the, uh, the fragility uh, of our democracy. So last week, you know, we had some policy news, but really not from Congress. Uh, headlines about the flurry of executive orders and other things that uh, President Biden has, has done and will be doing in the coming weeks. Um, can you give us a sense of what you think, uh, you know, will likely come from this new administration? Well, I think, you know, I think it's important to say that uh, we are we are in unprecedented times uh, at the moment. And, and, and actually, I think we're facing four major crises all at once. Uh, and no other president has, I think, begun his presidency uh, this way. Um, and because we're in unprecedented times, it's going to require unprecedented uh, an unprecedented response. And uh, the president has even said this is going to be a warlike undertaking. And so clearly we have to address the, the COVID crisis. That's, you know, first and foremost. Uh, the economy 
the climate uh, crisis and I think the sort of the systemic racial injustice that we have seen sort of permeating, you know, through these uh, kind of three major crises that we're facing. And so um, obviously, you know, so far the Biden administration is taking, you know, swift action to get its arms around the COVID pandemic. Um, this is going to be the priority uh, with over 400,000 Americans who have sadly already died. And uh, we absolutely need to crush this virus. I have uh, said for the last nine to 10 months, however long it's been, you know, that the virus has really had control of us and we need to get control uh, of the virus and, and crush it. And thankfully, uh, the president has, uh, is planning on and will use every tool in his, you know, executive toolbox, including the Defense Production Act uh, to speed up the manufacturing of the vaccine. He'll use the National Guard and FEMA to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as humanly possible um, and get our country back on track again. Um, and uh, so clearly, you know, COVID, addressing COVID and um, a relief package for the American people are clearly going to be first and foremost uh, on the priority list. And um, so I, I think once once we get there, I think that there are other issues that we need to tackle. But for the for the moment, this these are the most obviously the most critical. And so um, it's going to be an, an extraordinary undertaking. And it's going to really require uh, cooperation from the American people from our states, uh, cities, from every, really every level of government, but the federal government really needs to step up and I think is finally stepping up to provide that leadership. So as we talk about the leadership and, and what this next Congress will bring, we know that uh, Democrats have a slim majority, a very slim majority in both the House and Senate. How do you see this 117th Congress operating and, and do you think lawmakers will come together and be able to, uh, you know, work together to pass meaningful legislation? Well, we have to. Um, their inaction is really just, it's its not an option. As I said before, we are in unprecedented uh, times. And so we must, uh, you know, House, Senate, Democrats, Republicans, um, we're going to have to work together. And uh, I know, again, uh, Joe Biden's uh, experience uh, in his bipartisan manner and uh, having served, uh, you know, for so long, uh, certainly in the Senate, understands how government works. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's going to be, I know that Democrats, we stand ready to, to work with Republicans. And I just hope that the Republicans also stand ready to work uh, with with us. And certainly, you know, in the House, we can pass legislation with a simple majority. Um, but as you know, uh, in the Senate, it takes 60 votes to pass most anything uh, with the use of a filibuster. Um, again, I hope the president's relationship with uh, Mitch McConnell uh, will will pay off. And if Mitch is willing to work with the Democrats, as I said, we stand ready to, to, to work with them. And um, I will say if we can't find common ground, 
Um, we will certainly have to stand our ground, uh, stand our ground. But like I said, in action is just not is just not an option with this uh, uh, COVID pandemic and uh, our economy the way it is. I mean, we have to move forward. And I I, I will say that we are already uh, underway and preparing for. Uh, you know, the budget process, either in, the, in a traditional sense or if we have to utilize uh, reconciliation, uh, which only requires 51 votes in the Senate, we're prepared to go, uh, we're prepared to go either way. Um, and uh, we know that with reconciliation, we, you know, there are some limitations uh, to that, um, but we can at least get the resources out there, I think, that we need. And and hopefully resources to help um, uh, help the American people and and help an economic uh, recovery. But obviously, the best way is for us to walk to work in a bipartisan way um, and and move important legislation uh, forward in the traditional sense, where we find common ground and and move forward. Well, speaking of issues and legislation, you know. Dynamic and our members have been involved with mitigating and responding to wildfires um, really everywhere. Of course, last year, there were so many in California, Oregon, and Washington. Um, you've been a leader in, in the wildfire effort as well. And unfortunately, your district has, has been hit by them. Can you tell us a little bit about work, your work on, on this important issue? Yeah, well, you're right. My district is no stranger uh, to uh, the devastating effects of, of wildfires. It was, you know, right in my very first year in Congress, uh, we experienced the spring uh, Springs fire, which uh, resulted in mudslides that damaged homes in the Camarilla Springs uh, neighborhood in, in, in my district. And then in my third year, uh, my district experienced, at least at the time, uh, two of California's largest fires in its history. Um, that had really just devastating, devastating destruction. Um, that it, with both of those fires, virtually covered the entire county. So, all of these experiences really have led me to be a, a, a huge uh, champion for uh, federal pre-disaster mitigation programs. I mean, I think we all know it's. Uh, for every dollar that we invest in pre-disaster mitigation, we can save between four and $8 in post-disaster recovery. We can't rebuild uh, and rebuild in the same way. It's just, that's not smart and, and we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, in 2018, uh, you know, I serve on the transportation committee and uh, we passed the disaster recovery reform act that I know you're, familiar with that overhauled uh, the, the FEMA's disaster assistant programs and and focused a lot more um, on pre-disaster uh, mitigation. So it was a good piece of legislation, but, but still there's um, a lot more uh, to do and we still need to provide, I think, more uh, funding uh, for these programs through the appropriation uh, process and you know, we've got to continue to encourage local communities to in, improve building codes that address hazards. And, and, you know, in California, we have earthquakes, wildfires, floods, wind events. You know, we have it all. 
um, uh, here uh, in the state. And uh, I think you know that uh, the speaker put me on um, the select committee on the climate crisis, uh, and uh, I've I've um, been honored to to, to serve uh, on that committee, and we released a a, a comprehensive uh, report last summer, over 500 pages, um, and we called for Congress to you know dramatically increase and provide stable uh, dollars and pre pre-disaster mitigation and resilient disaster recovery. Um, and um, so, you know, we, we've, we've got to make sure that that legislation gets through and becomes, uh, and becomes law. Yeah. And I think, so, you know, by serving actually on the transportation and the select committee on the climate crisis, it's, I, I've got, you know, two avenues to really uh, uh, push for, for strong legislation. Representative Brownlee, thank you for all your work on that. Thank you for uh, your service. And uh, we appreciate your time today with us on uh, Insurance Outscripted. Now for some perspective on the other side, Chuck also spoke with Republican Congressman Brian Stile, first elected in 2018 to represent Wisconsin's first congressional district. Representative Brian currently serves on the House Financial Services Committee, where he has been a leader in fighting for many of NAMIC's top policy priorities, including defending the state-based system of insurance regulation and pushing back against efforts to take away the ability of NAMIC members to use critical underwriting factors in pricing risk. Well, thank you for joining me today, Congressman Style. It is truly an honor to have you as a guest on NAMIC's podcast. Chuck, appreciate you having me on. Hey, so, you know, our chat today is about a week after the riots at the Capitol. And so I just want to start off by saying I hope you and your staff stayed safe through all those events, uh, those unfortunate events in Washington, D.C. last week. Yeah, a very difficult day for our Capitol, a difficult day for our nation. Uh, myself, uh, my entire staff, we were safe. Uh, obviously not true with everyone. Uh, we're going to need to have a full accounting uh, of what happened, uh, hold those individuals who engaged in illegal behavior. Uh, accountable, but uh, my staff and myself, uh, yes, we were safe, uh, but a difficult day for the country for sure. Well, of course, it's it's a symptom of uh, really a nation divided on so many important issues. Maybe you could start by just talking about some of the policy perspectives on some of the changes we might see with a new Congress and new administration in Washington this year. Well, I think we're going to have a lot of information here in the coming days as the Biden administration uh, comes in and begins moving forward. I would say uh, my, the, the great opportunity here is after a significant crisis uh, like we had, uh, that cooler heads can prevail uh, and we can find ways uh, to work together on behalf of the American people, really get the work done uh, that the vast majority of Americans want. That doesn't mean there's easy decisions to be made. Uh, but I do think we need an opportunity to come together to try to find those solutions that move us forward. Uh, at the same time, I hold uh, significant concerns on, on some of the regulatory barriers uh, that some on the left uh, are aggressively pushing, uh, and we're going to have to work our way uh, and push back against those. But ultimately, I look at the next year in front of us as really an opportunity to find ways to come together to get our economy up and running. Uh, to keep America healthy, to ultimately defeat the coronavirus and fully uh, unleash the full strength of the American economy uh, into work to make sure that we're keeping America safe 
uh, both abroad and at home. And hopefully uh, we're going to find opportunities to work together to do just that. Well, I know one area where your leadership will be critical and that we'll really count on you in the House Financial Services Committee is in areas like, um, you know, and well, there, there, there will be attempts, we know, to erode risk-based pricing. And these things, you know, we know as industry people would take away statistically proven factors that ensure our members' policyholders are paying their lowest possible rate. You know, as you look at the committee's work next year uh, and maybe some of these issues, where do you see them going in the committee? Well, what we saw in the committee, that's a great question. What we saw in the committee over the course of the last two years uh, is some on the left wanting to socialize risk. Uh, and that's exactly what you're broadly speaking about, where we remove the ability of financial institutions to identify an individualized risk. Uh, and if we go into an environment where that risk is socialized, what we will ultimately see uh, is a higher cost burden for all consumers. And so this is something that we're going to have to push back against uh, pretty aggressively. And I, so my concern is that we're going to see a continued push both in the House Financial Services Committee uh, and now the real concern is also in the Senate. So if you look back over the last session of Congress, a number of bills that would have put significant roadblocks in the way of financial institutions individualizing risk were ultimately passed uh, by the committee. The concern is now unlike before where the Senate was a roadblock, if the Senate takes up and moves those bills forward, we could have very significant implications on financial institutions and ultimately on consumers who are gonna be hindered by this with higher prices for the products that they need to live their life. Yeah, um, so true, it's gonna be a major issue both sides of the capital uh, this year. Let's talk a little bit about a success, and it goes back to last Congress, and, and you, know, you were involved, but you know we were really happy to see the enactment of the PAID Act at the end of 2020, and you were a co-sponsor of that. And, and you know our members know it, it closed a loophole that really needlessly exposed them to Medicare secondary payer litigation. Uh, and ironically, as I think back to history and our work with another great leader from uh, from your district. You know, it was way back then that uh, we started on that bill in the Ways and Means Committee with former Speaker Paul Ryan. So maybe you could talk about um, about that, if you'd like, or about uh, working with uh, Speaker Ryan and then, uh, you know, taking his place in Congress. Yeah, I would love to. So in particular, as it relates to the PAID Act, what we saw in the PAID Act getting passed was good governance actually being enacted into law. And so as we look at our broad entitlement programs, as we look at the large bureaucracy in the United States, there's always opportunities to make these programs operate and run more efficiently, both between the government and in the private sector. And what we saw specifically as it relates to the PAID Act is making sure that the private sector is not on the hook or blocked from the information that they need uh, to be able to deliver the services. Again, the more we can reduce that regular regulatory burden, the more we can reduce the cost, it's ultimately to the benefit of consumers. And that's what this is all about, is lowering that transactional cost for the consumers so the final product can be lower, whether or not that's obtaining insurance in the first place, or, or if in other financial areas, you know, maybe buying your first house or buying a car, uh, which is something a little bit easier sometimes for people to think about, getting those costs down, those transactional costs actually helps consumers 
enter the market and lowers the burden on them. And so I think the Paid Act is, a, is an action where good governance was able to win the day. Uh, as you noted, I, uh, I'm from Janesville, Wisconsin. I started uh, my career, graduated from Georgetown University, and my first job uh, out of college was working for then my hometown congressman, Paul Ryan. Uh, he was uh, a backbencher, a young uh, member of Congress at the early part of his career. Uh, at the time that I worked from him, I left the Hill in 2004. Uh, but what you really learned from Paul was probably two things. One, he was a guy that did his homework. He sat, he studied the issues, he became a master of the issues, and as a result, he became really effective at effectuating important policy changes, probably why uh, you and him got along and why he would have been on the front lines of something like the Paid Act, which is good governance and something that he would have cared about but was willing to work and be in the weeds to get it done. The other thing I think you, you see from Paul Ryan is that he really demonstrates how you can agree without being disagreeable, that we can lower the temperature on so many of the issues that are before us and talk in an intellectual and thoughtful way, uh, but not in a derogatory or an inflammatory way. We need to see more of that type of rhetoric here in Washington, uh, in particular in light of the past week here in D.C. It's a real opportunity for all of us to reflect on the words that are used uh, both in political discourse uh, as well as discourse uh, across the United States as a way to come together as a country, to move our country forward, get us growing, and keep us healthy. Uh, I think those are two great lessons that one can learn uh, from Paul Ryan. Totally agree. Totally agree. Anyway, well, last question, and I really I want to go back to your uh, private sector experience. I know you did some work around data compliance. Um, you know, we're going to, we anticipate progress on data security policy in Congress this year. We really need to have it. And so, you know, as we look at protecting the data of the nation and in our case, you know, our members, policyholders, uh, which is so critical, you know, how do you think we can uh, work on that issue and make sure that we get it right, uh, hopefully in this Congress? This, this is an absolutely critical issue to get right and not easy to get it right. Uh, so as you noted, uh, I worked uh, for a big publicly traded company, manufacturing company headquartered in Wisconsin, but with global operation. Um, and as Europe implemented uh, their data privacy laws, I was involved in that implementation. We have a lot of lessons that we can learn from that. In some ways, uh, that program worked well. In many ways, uh, there were significant flaws. And so the way that I describe this kind of generally to people it's easy to understand what, say, the right to be forgotten means as it relates to Google or Facebook. You can envision actually allowing those entities to delete out uh, references to an individual that requests it. It's a lot more confusing, a lot more difficult to understand what the right to be forgotten means, say, in life insurance. Uh, you know, do you have the ability to remove yourself if you're the beneficiary of somebody else's policies? And so in drafting this language, it gets incredibly technical to make sure that we get it right, that it's not just right for one industry, uh, in particular, say, a social media industry or things that are top of mind uh, to your average voter, but also to get it right for all the other areas where data privacy is both critical and essential. And so one of the areas that uh, your organization and many of your members is so helpful is helping guide us so that ultimately we get this right. We, what we have seen over the past handful of years is a balkanization of rules across the United States in many times where those rules conflict. So for example, sometimes you'll have a rule in New York that conflicts with a rule in California. 
and it's actually impossible to do both states legally at the same time. That's where it makes sense for sometimes the Commerce Clause comes in uh, and actually trumps uh, the federalism aspect of the Constitution where there's such significant efficiencies to have a, a one standardized rules so that we can move forward in an efficient and thoughtful manner. Again, going back, the more we create efficiencies on our broader industry, the lower we can get transaction costs, the benefit to consumers. And so as we look out, continuing that dialogue and feedback as to how we can put in place a standardized set of rules that are beneficial both to consumers but are workable uh, to the businesses and industries that are holding that data is going to be absolutely essential. It's going to be an ongoing dialogue, uh, but something that is incredibly front of mind both to members of Congress, uh, industry, as well as uh, you know average citizens that are having their privacy or their data uh, held uh, by businesses all across the United States. That is so true, and we look forward to working with you on that because we share the same objectives. So with that, I just say thank you. Thank you uh, for your time on the podcast today. Thank you for your service. I know these are challenging days uh, in Congress, and we're, uh, we're really happy to have you uh, working alongside us on some of the issues that our country faces. Thank you very much, Chuck. I will say in these challenging times, it's, it's easy to look uh, at the most difficult aspects, but there's also great moments of what makes our country so great, whether or not that's the officer uh, that jumped in to help people out uh, most recently in the challenging days of the Capitol, uh, or nurses and doctors who are stepping up to the plate. Uh, and there are those moments uh, where you can reflect, and it is a reflection of how great our country is uh, and the great future that we have. And appreciate you having me on today. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We'll be back on February 10th with more insurance news and interviews. And as always, if you have a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, don't hesitate to let us know. Just send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.